0: Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Health and Sports Show. My name's Tom Butterfield, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about breakfast today. So, we'll start with a little definition of what breakfast is. Breakfast is the first meal of the day eaten in the morning after waking from a night's sleep, and it literally gets its name from breaking the fast. So, how many of you berate those who don't eat breakfast? Or maybe you're the person who's been berated yourself for not eating before you head out the door in the morning. But what exactly is breakfast? Does it involve tea and toast? Is it the full fry up? Cereal? Is it bread, cheese and cold meats? Maybe for some of you, it's coffee and a cigarette, or perhaps it's nothing at all. But if we ask 100 people what breakfast is, we'll probably get different answers depending on their age, lifestyle and cultural background. In Britain we're very much a tea toast cereal bacon sandwich kind of crowd whereas in Japan for example it's common to have a meal that you'd be just as likely to have in the evening like rice pickles and some fermented vegetables of course in the western world we've been bombarded with a lot of advertising and marketing that pushes particular in air quotes foods and that deserves air quotes because i don't necessarily count some of these as real food due to their lack of any sort of real nutritional value. But we can get deeper into that another time. We won't get sidetracked. But what I find interesting is that I'm quite content to eat the same thing for breakfast pretty much every day. I I usually have sort of nine times out of 10, I have porridge, put some almonds some pecans in there, some pumpkin seeds, some... Uh, cranberries or raisins or something, some cacao powder, flaxseed, <laughs> some natural peanut butter in there, everything, just jam it all in. It is delicious. And yeah, some of you are probably thinking, oh my God, you know, it desecrates a fantastic, classic Scottish meal. But to be honest with you, I don't care. It's delicious. <laughs> and it keeps me going on my uh, sort of long days at work. But are you a breakfast repeater? <laughs> Sounds uh, pretty nasty, doesn't it? But I think a lot of us are. I don't think that we'd put up with that same repetition for our dinner, tea, lunch, or or supper, would we? One reason why breakfast may be more common in some cultures rather than others might be linked to the ability to store food overnight. The emergence of breakfast as a sort of regular routine, if you like, seems to have occurred at the same time that refrigerators became more affordable and companies started churning out sort of processed foods that had a longer shelf life. For example, let's travel back 130 years or so to 1894, no less, where a company called Kellogg's, ever heard of them? I heard they've done pretty well. <laughs> they launched a new health product called Cornflakes, which has been pretty popular. I know I snaffled a few bowls as a child, usually with tablespoonfuls of sugar on top of it, I'm ashamed to say. Usually when my parents weren't looking. (laughs) But they're made of refined corn. So they are a processed food. And they've got a very high glycemic index score of 81. Now, the GI score tells you how much they raise blood sugar when they're eaten and how fast it happens. So the higher the score, the bigger the rise, which is generally seen as a negative thing. For comparison, so we've got cornflakes has a GI of 81. Usually we sort of think of white bread as being fairly devil-like. Well, that's got a score of 72, so lower than cornflakes. A banana would be 58 and an apple would be 40. So you can see it seems like the more natural foods seem to have lower GI scores. Now, the problem with cornflakes is that during the processing period or process After the nutritious fat-containing parts of the corn are removed, but I believe it's called the brain, which sounds a bit gross, so I don't really mind that was taken out. (laughs) But the corn left over, once you've taken the brain, the nutritious fat part out, is put into pressure cookers at super, super high temperatures for hours and hours before it's rolled flat and toasted. So we're left with toasted starch flakes that at some point came from corn, which is a bit of a clunky name, isn't it? You'd struggle to fit that on a cereal box. So I can see why they eventually workshop that into corn flakes. There's barely a trace of any micronutrients, meaning that Mr. and Mrs. Kellogg now have to fortify, again, there's those air quotes again, they have to fortify these starchy flakes with chemicals and vitamins not really the sort of health product I'm in for personally, (laughs) but Mr. and Mrs. Kellogg are okay because they're happy with their whopping 40% profit, leaving a very healthy wedge of cash to spend on advertising to keep their air quotes again, healthy breakfast cereal narrative in our minds. And it is pushed all the time. And perhaps even there's enough left over to lobby the right people who will reinforce their products as highly nutritious. So not saying that they're bribing anyone or anything underhand. This is a political process, lobbying the right people and get their message across. And then the elected politicians that we have that always are looking out for our best interests, I'm sure, make the best decision for us and for everyone else. Yeah. You probably noted that in there as well, that little bit of sarcasm, perhaps. <laughs> but breakfast is important to kickstart our metabolism in the morning, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, our very own NHS guidelines here in Britain point out that skipping breakfast makes us hungrier later in the day. Therefore, we end up overeating later in the day and we gain weight and higher risk of obesity. Now, this has got to be backed up by solid science, isn't it? This can't just be some airy-fairy thing. Well, wrong, I'm afraid. (laughs) This is our first little peek behind the curtain of maybe some of the not-so-nice parts of the food industry. All is not what it seems, as those manufacturing the food have a large say in what our scientists and experts, air quotes again, Tell us is healthy. In other words, there's a high potential for conflict of interest. Have a look at some of the research papers that have been done on foods like, again, foods in air quotes, Coca Cola and other such processed foods. And you'll see that they're quite often sponsored by the Coca Cola company or the company that makes that particular food. Now, if I'm a scientist and I'm being paid to do a particular experiment or research paper, and the company comes up and says, right, we'll continue to pay you to churn out all these research papers that tell everybody how wonderful our food or drinks are, do you think you're going to start reporting things that are negative towards that company? Because they'll probably go and find somewhere else, won't they? to do their research. But um, but hey, that's only a theory. I don't know that for certain, but it makes sense, doesn't it? So let's get back to breakfast. <laughs> let's look at how these breakfast myths were started. A systematic review and analysis of 52 separate breakfast skipping studies was published in the British Medical Journal in 2019. Now, a lot of these studies were of such poor quality that they were rejected as they were likely to be subject to some kind of bias. And they were only left with 11 randomised trials that were considered of high enough quality. And the conclusion was that there was no evidence to support the claim that skipping meals makes you put on weight or adversely reduces your metabolic rate. Interestingly, the data actually showed the opposite with a lot of studies providing evidence that skipping breakfast could actually be a useful strategy to reduce weight, which makes you wonder whether this is why so many people are enjoying the results of intermittent fasting. So why do we not see this in the mainstream media? I haven't seen Mr and Mrs Kellogg or any of the other cereal producers begging us to skip breakfast for our own health. It's not in certain groups' interest for us to consume less breakfast cereal, for example. Sometimes, as we said before, they can even lobby and potentially have that influence at government levels. But let's have a look at a few other things. Have you ever heard people say that you should eat little and often? Yep, my hand's up too. Uh, The thought is that this produces lower spikes in insulin as a result of digesting smaller meals, which then lowers the risk of insulin resistance later in life, which could then go on to lead to type 2 diabetes. Well, the good news is that this advice does come from scientific studies, of small animals mainly, (laughs) and a few short-term human studies. But there was one study that was so convincing that it changed medical and nutritional thinking and was published in the very well-respected New England Journal of Medicine. Over 30 years ago. (laughs) But it must be good, right? Considering that 30 years ago, when we look at scientific things and and how things change, 30 years ago is a long time. So it must have been earth-shatteringly good to still be considered relevant today. So let's take a look. Now I'm going to give you the results first in order to really wow you and grab your attention. There were two groups. There was a grazing group, which ate little and often we can assume. And we'll explain a bit more about that later. And then you had the same participants then had a regular three meals a day. So the scores are in. Can we get a drum roll from someone? In the grazing group, Insulin levels in the blood decreased by 27% and cortisol, which is a stress hormone, decreased by 20%, which is pretty good going, isn't it? So that's what got everyone excited and started the eat little and often movement. But it's not my job to take things as they appear. I like to dig a bit deeper and do a bit of super sleuthing. Now, you wouldn't believe how many takes it took me to say that, right? (laughs) At least a dozen. Super sleuthing. (laughs) Let's look at this study in a bit more detail. Okay, so in this study, they used seven men. Yes, you heard that right. Just the seven men were involved, which is an extremely small number for any scientific study. I mean that means that there's only enough if they took one from each continent of the world and we're supposed to extrapolate those results across different age groups and ethnicities it just doesn't seem to make sense and where are the women <laughs> that's half the world's population out the window before we've even finished the first sentence about this uh, this study it's not really the best start is it but you know, let's keep going. It, it must get better, right? Because it's it's still said today, so it must get better. So in this study, seven men were given the same meals, and these were divided into seventeen mini portions for two whole weeks, and then after a break, they had two weeks where the identical meals were given as three meal portions, as we mentioned earlier. Well, two periods of two weeks isn't a particularly long time to carry out a study, is it? The strongest form of research study is called double-blinded. And this is where neither the researcher, the person carrying out the experiment, or the participant, the person involved in the experiment, knows what intervention they're receiving. In this study, it was impossible to blind the participants or researchers um, to what the intervention was, uh, because obviously they can see what they're having and they know how many times they've eaten. The short time frame and the inability to blind subjects, the participants, our seven men, really lowers the reliability uh, of the uh, research even further. So in short, <laughs> the results can't or shouldn't really be relied upon, as they could just be down to chance with such a small number of people uh, over that short period of time. And they certainly cannot be universalised to all humans. There weren't even any blooming women in it. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. So we can see, hopefully, now that some air quotes again, common sense knowledge about nutrition is backed up by old, small, unreliable scientific studies. But if enough people plaster it across enough newspaper front pages, stick it on enough uh, headlines on Facebook, you know, put it online, put it into newspapers, like we said, quite often these things just become a truth. Because how many of us really bother to read the research? How many of us get past that headline on the newspaper? I mean, I do, because it's my job. And um, it's my responsibility to my clients that I see in my clinic, and also to you, the listeners, to help you become fully informed. And hopefully it saves you loads of time and effort because, you know, weeks and weeks of research go into these uh, episodes and try and cramming it into something under half an hour is uh, sometimes quite tricky. But anyway, it seems like nutritionists, doctors, uh, perhaps some food industry professionals have, like the general public, not been doing their homework and allowed themselves to be misled by these headlines. The studies that found that breakfast skippers were more likely to be obese didn't really tell the full story because when we look deeper into the data we can actually see that people who skip breakfast were actually more likely to be on a lower income be less educated less healthy generally and have a poorer diet overall for all meals than those who did eat breakfast so All of these social factors are independently associated with being overweight, and it doesn't really have anything to do with eating breakfast at all. That's just something that seems to be loosely associated with it. But you know, let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story, eh? Despite the increasingly contradicting evidence from the research, the idea that skipping meals is unhealthy has been championed for decades and remains very much a key point in the healthy diet NHS recommendations by Public Health England and also in the current uh, United States uh, Dietary Association uh, guidelines for Americans and also over in Australia as well for their guidelines for nutrition to be fair though maybe it just takes a long time to change the direction of a big ship like the NHS or the USDA to change their viewpoint but it also raises suspicion that large food industry groups and associations are able to influence government officials so that false claims can become, air quotes, expert-backed health advice. I mean, would a multi-billion dollar industry like cereal manufacturing be happy to lose money if more people began skipping breakfast? Of course not, and most likely, this is why these outdated old wives' tales continue to be part of government policy around the globe. So are there benefits to missing breakfast? Well, if so, you know, what are they? Well, the most likely is that it extends the amount of time that we're in the fasting state. Evidence is building all the time to support that keeping fasting intervals above 12 to 14 hours can actually reduce insulin levels and help some people lose weight. Not everybody, but some, because we're all different, aren't we? Good. Glad you noticed that, because we're gonna repeat that phrase a lot through this podcast, but let's keep going. Now, if you haven't checked out our episodes on the microbiome, then after you've listened to this episode, do go back and have a listen, because there will be a little bit of crossover. Uh, there are some links in the show notes as always for you to follow but the microbiome is a community of tens of trillions of bacteria microbes fungi viruses parasites etc that live on our skin and inside the tissues and fluids of the digestive tract all the way from the mouth down to the colon and some data in research suggests that microbial communities benefit from periods of fasting After a gap of four to six hours without food, some species start to replicate and feed off the mucus of the gut lining, which is great for us because it actually makes our gut barrier more efficient and healthier. Fasting could also constitute as a rest and relaxation time for our microbiome, allowing them to sort of put their feet up and recover, resulting in them functioning more efficiently to help maintain our gut health. And we mustn't forget also that breakfast helps people concentrate better. Hands up those who have told their children they must eat breakfast so they can do better in the classroom. Yeah, my hands up. I did say that in the past, guilty. (laughs) But evidence for this is anecdotal at best. Some independent reviews have looked at lots of studies performed in this area and have found them to be of unbelievably poor quality. So There's no strong scientific evidence to favor forcing children to eat breakfast if they're otherwise well-nourished in other meals of the day. Some cereal and porridge manufacturers have suggested that rates of breakfast dodgers are increasing to, air quotes again, dangerous levels of nearly 50% in the UK. Now, is this dangerous to health or is this dangerous to their profit margins, I wonder? So I'm a porridge guy, so... I'm on the fence with this one. And if any of these porridge companies do want to sponsor the show, they can. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, Just get in contact. That's fine. So once again, as is the case with almost everything to do with health and well-being, there is no one size fits all when it comes to the question of if and when you should actually eat breakfast. It certainly won't harm you if you give it a miss every now and again, if you don't feel hungry. And as with most things in your life, if you're not sure, test it. You know, go without breakfast for a day or two and see how you feel. If you feel awful, then go back to your old routine or change what you're eating. I mean, that's allowed, isn't it? You know, we, we can make informed decisions about our own health and lifestyle, can't we? You know, my son isn't that fussed about food in the morning but my wife would literally fall over in the street if she didn't have a decent breakfast. So breakfast is an important meal to her, but that's certainly not gonna be the case for everyone. But thank you for listening. Uh, Remember to rate, review, and share the show with a friend or family member. And you can check us out on YouTube and contact us if you've got any ideas about future content. All the links and contact details will be in the show notes below. But until then, Take care and we'll see you in the next show. Bye-bye.